The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation 2, 1-7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you. Well, y'all, it is indeed uh, the word of the Lord, and it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb, would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, we, uh, we do indeed ask now that as we get into your word, uh, you would get your word into us. Uh, Holy Spirit, we, we would ask that you uh, would be among us, that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, that you would touch our lips to taste his sweetness, that you would touch our hearts and make them receptive of, uh, of all that he has for us this morning. For we ask this uh, in the matchless name of Jesus, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Well, uh, my name is David Filson, and I am one of the pastors at Christ Prez, and I'll just speak for my wife and, and myself. We always love when we get to come to in town. Usually, usually when I'm here, I'm doing a wedding. Uh, you know, if, if you're a minister for any length of time in the Nashville area, you're going to do weddings here at, at Scarrett Bennett, and you've probably attended many of them. Um, you know, and, and always I'll sit here and at the beginning of a wedding, I'll ask the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Uh, who, who gives this bride to this groom? And the, the father will say, uh, I give, you know, I give her to this, to this man. Um, when I do weddings, uh, I'll always give a gift when I'm doing a little wedding homily, right in the middle of the wedding homily, I'll give a little gift to, uh, the groom. And it's not something that he has registered for at REI or Home Depot, sorry, but I'll give him a gift and I'll hand it to him, make him hold it through the rest of the entire wedding ceremony. And I'll tell him when I give it to him, I'll say, look, this didn't cost me very much. I got it at Bed Bath & Beyond, maybe 15 bucks. Not cost me very much, but it's going to cost you everything for the rest of your life. Because what I'm giving him when I do a wedding, I give the groom a towel, just just a hand towel, a bath towel. I make him hold on to it. Uh, drape it over his arm while the wedding service is, is going on. And so if you see pictures in wedding albums of grooms walking down the aisle dragging a towel with them, you'll know who did their wedding. But I give it to him to say, 
listen, what you are signing up for here as, as, a, as a husband is the duty of the towel. John 13, to wash this woman's feet for the rest of her life, to lead her to Christ, to serve her, to wrap yourself, as it were, with this towel and wash her feet for the rest of, uh, of her life. And then usually what happens is after the service is over, all these women are coming up to me. Hey, you have any extra of those towels? Would you go see my husband and, and hand one off to him? Well, look, our, our passage uh, this morning kind of talks about the, the necessity of our love not growing cold. Because I'll say to husbands, there are going to be times where it's really hard, and you're going to fight the temptation for your love uh, growing cold toward, uh, toward your wife, um, toward one another as, as your husband, as your wife. And, and this morning, we, we, just, we just heard here, as Tommy read it, your love has grown cold. You, you've lost your first love. Uh, the Lord's anointed, the risen Messiah, addresses the angels of the seven churches. Each of the churches have, have an angel, in this case, Ephesus, the largest and most prominent city in Asia Minor. It was a very, very important uh, city for, for mercantile. It was a very, very important city for trade, for import, for exporting. It was a seaport town. Economically, it was crucial uh, in Asia Minor. But perhaps more than anything, Ephesus was known as a city where the worship of Artemis, the goddess Artemis, took place. In fact, the great temple to Artemis stood there, built on an ancient tree shrine in Ephesus. And in fact, if you go back to the book of Acts, chapter 19, you'll read of a very dramatic account of a dust-up that occurred when the entire city flooded into the amphitheater there in Ephesus, which still stands to this day. And they start crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they were wanting to tear the apostle Paul limb from limb because Paul had come to town and been preaching the gospel, and the preaching of the gospel turned out to be bad for business. The main business in Ephesus, believe it or not, above everything else, was tourism. People coming to that temple to worship Artemis. Now, the temple to Artemis uh, had, a, had a full complement of, of priests, of, of temple prostitutes, uh, financial corruption, all sorts of things. In fact, Greek philosopher Heraclitus said uh, that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at the immorality in that city. Not exactly the kind of place you'd find a thriving group of disciples, but there they were, and Paul's preaching the gospel. And there was a silversmith named Demetrius who was really upset with Paul because Paul's preaching of the gospel was causing people to turn away from the temple to Artemis. And that silversmith was like hammering out little miniature shrines of the temple that people would buy, think like at the gift shop, take back home with them and set up a little mini shrine to Artemis in their home. And, and so that, that was a major part of, of his trade. And Paul's preaching of the gospel was bad for business. And so they, they wanted to run him out of town. But there was a thriving group of disciples there in Ephesus. It really is interesting. Oftentimes where persecution is the highest, the gospel just seems to thrive. Uh, this particular church in Ephesus had been blessed by the ministries of preachers like Apollos, a husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, Onesiphorus, Timothy. In fact, Timothy was in Ephesus at the church there when Paul wrote his last two letters to him. Uh, also the ministry of Tychicus. I love that name. In fact, when, uh, when my wife was pregnant with our second daughter, our, we have one son and one daughter. When she was pregnant with our second child, we didn't know would she be a daughter, would she be a son. And, and so I had I'd convinced Diane that since we had named our first son, uh, a biblical name, Luke, and then partly after Luke Skywalker as well, because we're really into Star Wars. But um, so Gospel of Luke, Luke, Luke Skywalker. But with our second, we needed to have a biblical name. And I said, if it's a boy, I, uh, I want to name, name him Tychicus. 
And I had her convinced that I was going to insist on that as the head of the home. I was going to insist on Tychicus being the name of our second child and had her really going with that for a while. But it is a great name, Tychicus. I mean, it's, it's awesome. But Tychicus had a ministry there. Taking up the mantle of all of that ministry, building on that foundation, the Apostle John uh, comes and he begins to minister. Uh, had a real heart for the church in Ephesus. Uh, he shepherded the flock uh, there before his exile in Patmos. And naturally, he's going to be very interested when Jesus comes. And the first of the seven letters to the seven churches is to this church in, in, in Ephesus because it was his children in the faith. They, they really were. And what was the message? Well, in a sense, the honeymoon's over. The honeymoon's over. Their love for Jesus had grown cold. Uh, maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and you, you look like you belong and you got it all together, but you're feeling like you've gotten lost somewhere along the way. We are gathered in uh, before the service began and Wayne, I love the way he prayed. He said, Lord, can we just, can we just exhale uh, all of the baggage that we're bringing into this place and just breathe in, just inhale uh, from, from your grace and, and you need to do that. Maybe you're looking around and you wonder if everyone else here just loves Jesus in such an exemplary fashion, but your heart has just grown so, I don't know, numb, just, just anesthetized to him. You feel shriveled up. You wish you could sing, Jesus loves me, this I know and mean it, but you just can't. Maybe you remember a time when your passion for Jesus burned white hot, and, and now the, the still cold air of, of indifference just has taken over your, your soul. Well, the Lord Jesus is, is reaching out to us here. You know, the book of Revelation is difficult. There's all these symbols, all these numbers, all these things going on that make it difficult for us to really uh, grasp what is going on in, in such a unique part of the Bible. One of the things that you see repeated over and over in Revelation is the number seven. There are sevens of all kinds. We've got seven churches and, and letters to each of the seven churches, right? There are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. It's just a, it's a book full of seven. And that's because the, the number seven biblically speaks of fullness and, and of, of completion. And, and so this biblical number of fullness uh, really speaks to John's vision here. He, he, ha he has seven visions that show Jesus on the move, defending his people, assuring them that heaven is their home and, and that they are indeed going to make it. You see, Revelation is not kind of a run for the hills, retreatist document, kind of God bless us for no and no more. Create a little holy huddle and just hunker down and wait for Jesus to return. No, the book of Revelation is, is a victory song of the lion who is... Is, is the lamb. Uh, that's, what, that's what it really is. And John writes this. He receives this revelation while he's exiled on, on Patmos, which is about 60, 65 miles southwest of Ephesus. Now, today, uh, the island of Patmos really is about tourism. In John's day, it was a place where Rome exiled or banished uh, people who were socially disruptive, like John and the gospel that he, that he preached. You see, John had walked with Jesus. He'd even laid his head upon the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, can you imagine dining with Jesus, supping with Jesus, and just drawing that close to him to lay your head uh, upon his breast? John had been there, but, but he had never seen Jesus like this. In chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 16, John receives this, this vision uh, of Jesus that just un, undoes him. And in fact, the vision that we see in chapter 1, we got to kind of wrap our hearts and our heads around it because every letter that Jesus gives, there is a piece of that description of Jesus from chapter 1 that is given again in each letter to the seven churches. It, it's as if to say all of the, the characteristics of Jesus in chapter 1, the risen, glorified Jesus— 
there's an aspect of, of each of those characteristics that are a unique fit for the needs of each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And the other thing that's interesting to note is that that vision that, that John has of the risen Christ as he stands before him is actually a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel has a, a prophecy, a vision of the ancient of days and Jesus is basically the fulfillment of all of it. His clothing is, is royal and it's priestly. His hair is white because it speaks of wisdom. Again, he's the ancient of days. His eyes burn like fire. Nothing can escape the, the gaze of, of Jesus. His hands and his feet uh, speak of, of purity and of, and of strength. His voice is like the sound of many waters and it's a sword coming from his mouth, a sword of discernment and judgment a sword that, that, that opens us up. And in fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, that the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, any two-sided sword, and it divides between bone and marrow. In other words, it gets in and it begins to meddle in our lives, and it exposes the things that need uh, to be exposed. His, his face is so pure, uh, utter holiness. And John says, when I saw the risen Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I mean, imagine that. I fell at his feet like I, like I was a dead man. I was just so overwhelmed that there was something about the risen glorified body of Jesus that he just couldn't stand to keep looking at it. He fell at his feet like a dead man. Well, there, there are three things I want us to take home with us this morning. From, from this letter. One is, is the, Lord's, the Lord's anointed, and there is security in His sovereignty. Uh, secondly, the Lord's assessment. An informed mind must be joined with an inflamed heart. And then finally, the Lord's admonition that we are to remember, we are to repent, and we are to receive the reward that He, that he has, has for us. Um, John writes for us that Jesus holds the stars of each church in His hand. Likely these are angels that each church has assigned, assigned to it, commissioned to that particular church. That each of these churches has an angel assigned to it, and Jesus holds those angels in his hands. And what this tells us is that there is the earthly and the spiritual realm, and they are intertwined. Uh, there's a theologian named Vern Poitras who says this, listen carefully, the heavenly and the earthly realms therefore interlocked. And situations and processes in heaven have correspondence in mysterious fashion to processes on earth. Thus, the same messages go both to heavenly angels and to corresponding churches on earth. Now, I'm just going to let you know, when you come to the book of Revelation, the, the temptation to kind of immediately springboard off such a mysterious book and, and use it sort of as a as sort of a springboard into something that, that is a little more relevant. Maybe see this as a metaphor for something that, that's a little more uh, accessible. That, that, that's a strong temptation. But, but here's the thing. Nothing is more relevant than for us to realize who we are by union with Christ, who we are as the church. In fact, if you look back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, what do we read about ourselves? We read to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, made you, a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. In other words, do you realize that you, you are a kingdom? You are priests. In fact, Peter says just as much in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, declaring the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If we could let the Bible define us and speak to who we are, it calls us a royal priesthood. 
We, we need to understand what, what, what's going on when, when, when we gather for, for worship. There's something very mysterious, even right now, that's going on. If we could see with the eyes of faith what is taking place right now as we're gathered here, right here at Intown, as we are gathered, if, if we could begin to, to take seriously passages like Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the sin that encumbers and the things that entangle and run with perseverance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Right? He endured the shame of the cross. And then verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The picture there is, is of us, as it were, running a race as believers, and we are surrounded and being cheered on from the heavenly realm by those who have gone on before us. Imagine that if, if you have laid to rest someone in Christ and your heart is breaking, what the Scripture says is that he or she is cheering you on even now. We are surrounded by those who have gone on before us. Do we, are we willing to see with the eye of faith beyond the natural realm as to what is mysteriously going on in this place spiritually? In fact, if you turn a few pages in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, the author of Hebrews says this about what happens when we gather for worship. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. So you thought you came to scare at Bennett this morning, trying to find a parking place. And, and you did in, in one sense, right? You came to scare at Bennett, you tried to find a parking place. But what scripture says is you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know, the, the blood of Abel cried out of the condemnation of Cain's sin against him and ultimately his father's Adam's sin that brought it all about. The blood of Jesus cries out, there is no condemnation for you because the work is finished. The point is this, are you willing to look around and, and, and maybe, maybe somebody here counts how many we have in attendance on any given Sunday morning at town. But would you be willing, uh, when someone says, hey, how many people were at church yesterday? You say, man, we were packed out. We were completely packed. Because we were, we were there, but, but, but according to the Bible, there was myriad upon myriad angels and the saints surrounding the throne. And, and we're seated in the heavenlies ourselves. Yeah, I'm, I'm in my favorite pew, but according to Ephesians 2, 6, I am seated with Christ in the, in the heavenlies. And, and, and we sang, but, but our singing was an echo of the heavenly choir under the direction of the chief song leader, who is Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 2, singing the Father's praise over us and telling us that he's not ashamed to call us his sisters and his brothers. Look it up. Hebrews 2 verse 11. All that is going on when, when, we, when we gather. You know, the, the, the sermon is being preached, and the sermon that is being preached is an echo of the eternal sermon that is being declared by the very glorified, risen body of Jesus and the wounds that are still there, right? Did not Charles Wesley teach us to sing, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me, forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. Are you willing to come to the table in just a few minutes and, 
and say, I tasted the wine. <laughs> Let it be heard that the curse has been, has been reversed. So, so there's great security here. What we are doing is not just stumbling around on earth. What we are doing when we gather here and we find our parking place is we are coming into the very holy of holies itself. And Jesus walks around among us, just as he said, I'm walking around the churches. He walks among the lampstands, that symbolic language for the churches in Revelation. He says, I'm walking, among, I'm walking among the churches in his sovereignty, in his control. He's inspecting, correcting, discerning, and he has every right. He's exposing rebellion in hearts like mine, enabling repentance. He's Emmanuel, God with us, right? We celebrate that at, at Christmas. Here's the reality. In about two months, if I can last that long, I'll fire up my Spotify Christmas playlist. I'll, I'll go ahead and start, man. I will. I can't wait. We'll buy tickets for Christmas Village in October. We'll go in November. And then it really is game on for the Christmas season, right? Can I get a witness? It's not that far away. But here's the thing. As much as we love Christmas, right? And the decorations, the spirit of the season, all that kind of thing. Does it, does it dawn on me? Does it dawn on you? That little child in the manger scene will settle for nothing less than reigning as eternal king of my heart and, and yours. I wonder, do we, do we really believe that Jesus is right now present in this place? Right now, Jesus present in this place. And we trifle with him. We negotiate with him. We want to maintain control. We want to set the terms of what relationship with him is going to look like based on our experiences or our feelings or our preferences or our wants or whatever. And we're kind of like Jill Pole in the silver chair negotiating with Aslan who is standing there in all of his motionless bulk. He won't be negotiated with. Do we really believe that he's here? Exposing rebellion, enabling repentance. Also with the comfort of knowing that, that any sin he finds in your heart, he's already paid ransom for. All right, there's no condemnation for you. In Christ Jesus, Romans 8 1. Any, any, any sin that he finds, he's already paid ransom for. That, that's great comfort. But, but also the conviction that any sin he finds, he already provides grace for repentance because according to Romans 2, 4, it is his kindness that leads us into repentance. He doesn't browbeat us into repentance. He doesn't gaslight us into repentance. He doesn't guilt manipulate us into repentance. It's his kindness that, that woos us there. And so the Lord assesses the situation at Ephesus. You can look here at verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves or apostles and, and are not, found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, right? He is thankful for those things, but he says, this I have against you. You've abandoned your first love. You've, you've lost your, your first love. The, the Ephesians is just strong against false doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans. They, they pop up again in the letter to the church at Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 13, where Jesus says, I am riding to the church where Satan's throne is. That, that is Jesus' way of speaking of a large altar that it was in the city of Pergamum. I've actually stood on that altar. I've actually stood on Satan's throne. Uh, it, it was taken down and reconstructed, it shipped over to Berlin and reconstructed in the Pergamon Museum in, in Berlin. And, and that's where we read about the Nicolaitans again. And, and they were spreading their false teaching all over Asia Minor. And we don't know a whole lot about it, but we know that it involved uh, in its worship pagan sexual rituals with, with pagan deities and, and so forth. And, and, and the, the Ephesians had withstood it. They had stood against it, right? 
In fact, when, when Paul left the Ephesian church, uh, back in Acts chapter 20, he was going to go on and do missionary work, and he left tearfully, and he warned the elders of the Ephesian church, listen, false teachers are going to try to slip in among you, and so stand guard, protect the flock, right? The Ephesians could spot false teaching a mile away. They were good at defending the faith, but they weren't delighting in it. They were defending the faith, but they, they weren't delighting in it. They, they knew their theology, but they lacked doxology. They had lost their first love. An informed mind must be joined with, with an inflamed heart for Christ and for one another. Listen, it's crucial that we defend sound doctrine. John Calvin was a pastor, theologian who lived from 1509 to 64, and he said, the pastor must have two voices, one with which to gather in the sheep and the other with which to ward off the wolves, right? We have to stand for sound doctrine. John did that. Polycarp, I love that name too. He lived from around 70 AD to somewhere around 155. He was actually a disciple of the Apostle John. And he tells the story of when the Apostle John had gone into a bathhouse to bathe himself. And he comes running out and he says, let us flee, let us flee for Serentheus, the enemy of truth, is within. Let even the bathhouse fall down. So listen, he was all about defending the faith and standing against false doctrine. But Jerome, an early church father who lived just a few years later, 345 to 419, wrote in his commentary on Galatians that the apostle John, when he became so aged and weak and frail that he couldn't even walk into the congregation by himself, deacons would carry him into the congregation and they would hold him and he would simply lift his hand and say to the congregation, little children love one another, right? So, so defending sound doctrine like the Ephesians are doing, it's crucial but there must be love for Christ. There must be love for, for, for one another. And, and, and the reality is, man, sometimes it feels easier to take stands, right? To work hard for Jesus, to work hard for the church than to cultivate a tender, passionate, felt love for Jesus. Sometimes Martha comes more naturally to us than Mary. And, and so we have to ask ourselves a question, what competes in your heart and mind? What competes um, with a tender, intimate, broken-hearted love for Jesus and one another in your heart. It's one of the reasons I love church history, right? An old Puritan named Thomas Vincent wrote a book called The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ, where he speaks of the, of the beautiful face of Jesus, right? His presence so refreshing, and that he wanted more of the heart-ravishing smile of Jesus upon him. Or Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor who spent much of his life in jail, but wrote letters from jail about his love affair with Jesus. It's just incredible the, the way he speaks. He, in fact, he says, I see my imprisonment as an opportunity to write books and love songs about the love of Christ. The love of Christ would keep all created tongues of men and angels in exercise and busy night and day to speak of it. I think that a soul could live eternally blessed only on Christ's love and feed upon no other thing. Yes, when Christ in love giveth a blow of suffering, it doth a soul good. It is a kind of comfort and joy to get a blow from the lovely, sweet, and soft hand of Jesus. I mean, who talks about Jesus that way? Who feels those kind of things about Jesus? Last, last Sunday, I, I quoted Jonathan Edwards, uh, an American theologian from, we lived from 1703 to 58. So early pre, you know, he's colonial pre, you know, revolutionary theologian, and he would speak of Jesus as, as the cream of all our pleasures. I mean, who speaks of Jesus that way? Of Jesus is altogether lovely, of the sweetness of Jesus. I mean, who, who thinks, who talks about Jesus that way? And I, and I quoted this 
this passage from Edwards and it seemed to touch a very dry, thirsty place in the hearts of a lot of folks there because they were emailing, give me that quotation, I need it. I want to meditate on it this week. Edwards says this, Christ is like a river. A river is constantly flowing. There are fresh supplies of water coming from the fountainhead continually so that man may live by it and be supplied with water all his life. So Christ is an ever-flowing fountain. He is continually supplying his people and the fountain is not spent. They who live upon Christ may have fresh supplies of water from him to all eternity. They may have an increase of blessedness that is new and new still and which will never come to an end. Right? There's just a generation of, of women and men who thought differently about relationship with Christ. Elizabeth Prentice. Elizabeth Prentice was a, a 19th century hymn writer. This may be familiar to some of you. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. And finally, Jesus admonishes the church to remember to repent to receive the reward. Remember, he says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember your former devotion to me. R- remember, uh, savor the memory of the intimacy that you had with me. Remember that. And then repent. Metanoia in the Greek, a, a turning from one thing to another. Turn back to me. Fall in love with me again. Fall in love with me again. And start doing again the works that you were doing. Doing the good works that you were doing as a sign of your repentance. Right, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, the Apostle Paul says this, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Now, a couple of key things there. Paul did not say work for your salvation. He said work out your salvation. Your salvation is already yours. Live it out. Be who you are in Christ. Work out your salvation. For it is God at work in you both to will and to do. In other words, our good works do not earn our salvation, but they evidence that we've been saved. Our good works do not merit our salvation, but they manifest that we are in relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, repent, do those works again, return to me, and I'll restore you. You know, I think of Peter. I think of Peter in John chapter 1, verses 15 and following, after he is in a a very cowardly way, denied Jesus as I have on more than one occasion and will again. I think of Peter who had denied Jesus in such a cowardly way and and, and here you have the resurrected Christ, right? Peter hears that Jesus has risen He's, he hears that he's risen and he runs to the tomb. I'd have gotten the heck out of Dodge, man. But, but Peter knows there's something about Jesus that will not reject him. And so in John 21, Jesus is restoring Peter. And notice that Jesus does not come to Peter and say, okay, now Peter, you've really screwed up. What are you going to do now to pay me off? What are you going to do to kind of work your way back into my good graces? Here's the thing. If we have to work our way into the good graces of Jesus, it's neither good nor grace. Jesus works to bring us into his good grace. That's what he's doing to Peter. He doesn't say, what are you going to do to earn my grace? He simply, he simply says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and I wonder if at that moment, as Jesus pressed him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? If it became clearer in John 21 for Peter, what Jesus was doing to Peter back in John 13 when he washed his feet. When he put the towel around his waist and did for him what he could not do for himself, promising that he was never going to give up on him. He's never going to give up on you.
You're never going to give up on me. In fact, Jesus offers his reward. You heard Tommy read it earlier. The tree of life, right? The tree of life. All that was lost in the garden and more is going to be returned to us. The tree of life. You know, Revelation brings things full circle, and I'll close with this. The Bible really is a tale of three trees. Sometimes this can be kind of an intimidating book. Where do I begin? How do I make sense of of the Bible? The Bible really is simply this, a tale of three trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 16, following 3, 1 through 7, where we were not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you know the story our first parents did because they wanted to be their own gods, make their own rules about right and wrong. And so they, they fell, they, they rebelled at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you read a little bit further, and the Lord says, now lest they take and eat of the tree of life and live forever, let's remove them. They removed from the Garden of Eden, not so much as punishment, but as protection, lest they took and ate of the tree of life and were confirmed forever in that fallen rebellious state. The Lord removed them from the garden and placed a flaming sword swinging this way and that and cherubim to guard entrance. No longer was there access into that temple-like garden. No longer was there access to the tree of life. You say, well, you said it's a tale of three trees. Where's the third one? Well, the third one is Deuteronomy 21, 23, or Galatians 3, 13, or 1 Peter 2, 24. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, Jesus, the last Adam, hung upon the cursed tree to pay for the sin of the first Adam at the first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so that what? He could say to the Ephesians and to us, I've made a way for you back to the tree of life where you will take and eat freely and you will be confirmed forever, not as rebellious and broken and sinful, but glorious and righteous in, in my sight. You ever, you ever think about the account of the death of Jesus in Matthew 27, verse 51? You remember what happened there when Jesus hung upon the cross? The ground begins to shake. And, and think about if you were simply a Levite going about your business there in the temple in Jerusalem, just doing your thing, and, and a rumbling started happening and a deafening sound of a curtain four inches thick, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, begin to rip from top to bottom and fall to the ground. You ever read back in Ephesians or Exodus 28 what was sewn onto the curtains in the tabernacle in the temple? Cherubim. The cherubim that guarded access to the Holy of Holies fell to the ground. Right? As one New Testament theologian says, just as nothing can bar Jesus from entering the Holy of Holies, so nothing can bar you from entering the Holy of Holies. And that's where you are this morning. You say, well, David, what about that flaming sword? that was swinging this way and that. Is that still there? And it was plunged into the very heart of Jesus so that this table could be spread for you. You see, as I said earlier, the temple of Artemis was actually built in Ephesus on the site of an ancient tree shrine. The palm date tree was the sign, the symbol of the the goddess. All that lies in ruins now. You... Christ Presbyterian Church are built on Christ. You are built on Christ, and uh, because that sword was plunged into the heart of Jesus, you are invited now to come freely and eat of an appetizer of the tree of life, where a great marriage feast is prepared for you. And, and what you're going to hear, and what you need to hear, are the echoes even now of this question, who gives this bride to be married to this groom? 
And your heavenly father says, I do. I give this bride to be married to this groom and let them come and taste even now an appetizer of the tree of life and realize they're going to live forever. Let's prepare our hearts for the supper. Gracious Father.